0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco Radio. This week, we speak with the former Prime Minister of Norway, Erna Solberg.
1: I always thought I would have an ordinary job, but then somebody thought that I was a talent that they wanted to get into Parliament before I finished university.
0: Plus, the first female winemaker in Argentina.
2: I started bringing into Argentina new technologies, new procedures, new things for wineries and being one of the protagonists of the winemaking in Argentina wine industry.
0: All that and much more in the next hour on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the former Prime Minister of Norway, Erna Soberg. She sits down with Andrew Muller to discuss her political career and the future of Europe's relationship with Russia.
1: I started to be active in the youth movement of the Conservative Party just before I became 16, which was in the 70s. It was a very white and black political debate at that time among young people. It's uh, still the Cold War, it was still a lot of discussions on it's just before, you know, you got this whole, what we call the conservative wave that you got in Europe in the late seventies and early eighties for more freedom and other things. And, and I did this just for fun, for the activity. I never thought at that time, I never thought I would be a politician. I, I never thought that until I was nominated to parliament, because even though I had been member of the city council, I mean, that's something you do on your spare time. It's not a, it's not a job. And I always thought I would have an ordinary job. But then somebody thought that I, that I was a talent that they wanted to get into parliament before I finished university.
3: It's a question that I suspect may occur to a lot of people who live in uh, slightly less functional and orderly and wealthy countries than Norway, which is pretty much every country. Is there any amount of frustration at being a politician in Norway? Do you ever start finding yourself thinking, everything's kind of fine as it is? Things more or less work? Is there really all that much for me to be doing?
1: Well, I think you will find challenges in all countries. I mean, in Norway, I'm often asked why. what were the issues I was concerned about when I was 16 and became political active. I was concerned about educational policies, women's rights, development in the third world, and I chose the Conservative Party because I believed that the ideology, believing in the individual, taking away restrictions, more freedom, would make it possible to become better on all of these issues. And I I still find challenges in this area. So when I was prime minister, I was working on education for girls around the world as part of our strategy. So I think you will always find things that you can get engaged in. And I think even though we are healthy that um, there is for most Norwegians compared to the rest of the world, we are happy to born in this period of history and in our country. We still have young people falling out of our education system. We still struggle with people who have mental illness challenges and we are going to solve the climate challenges of the world, which also means that Norway has to sort of restructure our economy in the future. This is another thing
3: that may also seem different from inside Norway, but it's certainly how it seems from outside Norway. And this applies to, I I think, all the Nordic countries to a large extent, that your politics seems just a lot more collegial friendly and bipartisan. After you lost the most recent election, you quite cheerfully said that you thought your opponent would actually make quite a good prime minister. Is that how it actually seems from inside Norwegian politics? Do you just put on a friendly face and behind that it's as rancorous and brawling and scheming and and nasty as everywhere else?
1: I think it's nastier inside political parties my party is quite peaceful these times. It's not always been like that. Now the Labour Party has had a little bit more of that, but it goes a little bit up and down. Of course, if you have success, it's better than if you don't have success. But it's, uh, now I think it's important to remember that all the Scandinavian or the Nordic countries are quite small and we are quite heterogeneous. I think it's, the divisions is not that big in our societies. And I think People also want us to be finding common solutions on the big issues. For example, we say that we have, it's, it's important for us that our foreign policy doesn't really change much. It changes a little bit, but not much between different governments because we are a small country and we should be relied on like that. So there are divisions inside, but most, I think most members of parliament, it would be people I would happily go out and have a glass of wine with and discuss issues with after a debate because usually most politicians are more social than the average Norwegian also because you know you have to transparent in a system that elects people who maybe are a little bit more outward spoken and things like that but that, yes it is nice like it's usually like that then you will always find some some people that you don't really want to take a glass of wine with because they are too they can't relax after a debate. You mentioned foreign
3: policy there, which does bring us to the inevitable. Norway is a country which does have a land border with Russia. People, I think, may tend to forget that because Norway seems, if you take the first glance at the map, quite a long way away from Russia, but you do have that border up in the high north. Has what we've seen Russia do over the last 18 months changed the way Norway thinks of its security, do you think? Or perhaps should it have changed the way Norway thinks of its security?
1: We have been members of NATO since the founding of NATO, and that was our Second World War experience. We were neutral, and we got occupied by Nazi Germany. And It comes back to one thing that I think Norwegians know, and that is that the strategic part of our coastline is extremely important. We have a coastline that if you control that, it's easy to control the entrance into the Atlantic ice-free harbor for Russia. The biggest naval base they have in our part of the world, in fact, the biggest they have, their nuclear submarines are placed there just on the other side of the harbor, meaning that we are placed in a very geographically important area for Russia. So we know that their plan is if they ever come into a larger situation, they have this bastion defense system that they have, which will lock in Norway because they will try to control the North Atlantic part. This has been important for us always. And of course... Increased tension increases this focus. We had a long period where we thought we would be peaceful in Europe, but I think especially 2014 made us change. We have increased our finances for defense, not as much as NATO would have liked or or to reach the goals because our economy has also been growing, but we will probably now have to look through that again. In fact, we have had a commission that has been looking at that, suggesting quite heavily to increase expenditure for defense issues. But also uh, yesterday, in fact, our chief of defense, well, he's recommending a quite strong buildup of Norwegian defense capacity in the years to come.
3: But There has been a recurring theme, I think, in in European discourse over the last 18 months of those countries, the Baltic states, Eastern Europe in particular, those countries right up against Russia's border, saying to the rest of Western Europe that you've been complacent, you were kidding yourselves, you indulged in wishful thinking where Russia was concerned. Despite the fact that Norway does have that land border with Russia, do you think Norway was guilty of that? Do you think you thought you had a special relationship with Russia, and that you understood Russia in a way that the rest of Europe maybe didn't?
1: Maybe. I would say that's an area where there's a little bit difference in the different parties in Norway. I was a bit criticized after 2014 by my opponents, the Social Democrats, saying that we should try to have more collaboration with Russia, trying to build something new. That stopped. That debate is finished now. <laughs> Our view was that you should, we should be in line with the rest of Europe. Especially as a neighboring country, we should not be further ahead meeting Russia closer or we should be behind them. We should, in fact, stay in line because divide and conquer is a Russian tradition and trying to split up. So we were trying to be in line both with the sanctions, but also with the type of cooperation we have. Then we have to remember we have, we still have cooperation with Russia and Norway in the north because we have joint work on fisheries, negotiations, control of the fisheries. We have rescue operations together and we will continue doing that because we try to make sure that we have a peaceful corner that is working and that if there is an emergency on a Russian fishing boat in the area where we will meet them quickest, we will go. So we will still try to do that, but the political cooperation is now near to zero.
0: And this week on the Monaco Daily there was a very interesting panel between Ivor Gaber and Julian Norman. They were discussing the story about the New York Times disbanding its sport department. They will start relying on coverage from The Athletic, a website it acquired last year for $550 million. Let's hear what our panelists have to say about this.
4: Let me preface my remarks by saying every time over the last 20 or 30 years media, so-called media experts like me have predicted what's going to happen in the media, you can guarantee we were wrong.
5: (laughs) I'm a fellow media person as well. I I, I acknowledge what you said. (laughs) Predicting how
4: audiences will behave is a fool's errand. However, full, full disclosure, I am both a subscriber to The New York Times and The Athletic. It's far more than a website it 's a very fantastic it's a very very good service um, when it comes to football, which is my particular interest it's it's very deep and analytical and interesting. What I think we're seeing here and it was I think it was a smart move by the New York Times is an attempt by the New York Times I'm not sure it's about branding it's I never looked at the sports coverage in the New York Times and I, I don't think it was ever great um. But I do think that... Actually, I shouldn't say that. I know nothing about baseball, American football. It was probably brilliant at baseball, American <laughs> football. And actually, I'll leave that to Julie. But I do think we're seeing quite an interesting development. Um, the idea of media packet, media products being sliced and diced. And, and it, then acquired. Well... Yes, well, the New because York, Times. Because that's yes. part
5: of the business model, isn't it? Close yes. by accretion.
4: But can, they, they are being acquired, but they're retaining their individual branding. So when you go on The Athletic, unless you're a media nerd like we all are, you wouldn't know it's oh, it's been owned by The New York Times. It is The Athletic. So I think it's interesting. You're right. The multinationals are acquiring them, but they're keeping their brands. And so they sort of get the best of both worlds.
5: That doesn't necessarily translate in the TV space in the United States, though, does it, Julie? Um, I mean, I speak as a former print and TV journalist. Um, you, you have more sort of amalgamation of brands.
6: Yeah, you do. And I, I would say the the Times one is an interesting one. And my sense is that you still have to pay more now for The Athletic, which, you know, I, I know it's a good business model from what Ivor was saying. But as someone who's like really into like journalism and politics, but also big sports fans, like I just think it's honestly a disservice to just everyday subscribers who like want to get the sports news. And uh, I think siphoning that off is just um, it's a disservice to readers and to fans, and I, I, I know there's reasons for it, but I think there's um, there's something to be said for journalism in that area. And The Times in particular um, has actually won several Pulitzers in the past, if I'm not mistaken, around yeah. concussions, around steroids and baseball. I mean, they've broken some of the biggest sports stories and done really good in-depth coverage there. So, personally, I'm sad to see it go, even though I see the media argument for it.
4: Um, I might be wrong, but do they not link your... New, new, I mean, I've got separate ones at the moment, but do they not link... Don't you get the additional... Um, the additional subscription to The Athletic for an extra $2 a month or something. I don't know. but
6: I think that is the model. It's a bolt on kind of like like the crosswords and the, the cooking parts and that kind of stuff. But I guess, so for someone like me, it's not a big deal, but I guess I'm just thinking like broad readership. There's yeah. many people who make a stretch to get the times and I think the sports should be included so, in so that. So
5: you're the US politics expert and you're against this. <laughs> you are the uh, professor of journalism and you're for it. Well, I, I, no, I, I think Julie makes a very
4: sound point. I'm being entirely selfish because I like the football coverage, I do think there's a, a wider issue that is actually goes back in the. If you you're all just about old enough to remember newspapers, my students aren't, so I have to explain what they are. <laughs> no
5: comment. But that,
4: <laughs> their great advantage is you you came across things, you read things you never expected because your eye caught them. Yeah. The problem with digital media is you go to the things you want. I mean. I'm guilty, I read, say, the Times every day and I don't go into the sections that don't really interest me and I should because on the odd days when I buy the paper I'm reading things that I would never read. This is taking it to an extreme and I think Julie makes a good point here. I'm not sure, OK, being serious, I'm not sure it's a good day for journalism when we're not capturing people who weren't interested in this but the headline or the intro grabs them.
0: You are listening to the curator. I am back with a highlight from the concierge. We're bringing you the lowdown via motorbike. We sent Monaco's Naomi Shoe Elegant off to Timor Leste with a helmet and enough money for a rental and a bit more, hopefully, to concoct this report.
7: There are no trains in Timor Leste, but a network of new roads and dusty trails connects the whole country. From the capital of Dili to the mountainous interior, the quiet southern coast, the far eastern island of Jaco and all the towns and villages in between. You can travel by bus or car, a 4x4 is advisable, but neither of those will be quite as exhilarating as a motorcycle trip. The recently upgraded National Road No. 1 stretches all the way along the northern coast of Timor-Leste, sometimes hugging the seaside cliffs and other points weaving between palm trees, tiny hamlets, and family farms. On a sunny day in April, a companion and I rented motorbikes in Dili, strapped on our helmets and headed east. A few white clouds daubed the blue sky, and it wasn't long before we left the city behind. On our right, banana and rosewood and eucalyptus and papaya and sandalwood trees rushed past as we sped down the coastal road. Behind the trees rose the green mountains of central Timor, shrouded by mist. On our left, the ocean sparkled under the sunlight, so blue it was almost absurd. We stopped several times, once to admire a mangrove forest, later to buy bananas and gasoline from a boy tending a roadside shack. But our main objective was to swim. The national road rises and falls with the passing kilometers, sometimes level with the sea, and other times rising far above it, curving against a sheer slope across which tiny goats scamper and bleat. We spotted a beach and parked. The white sand was hot from the sun, but the water was translucent and cool. After a brief and invigorating swim, we drove on, pausing for a snack at a rocky outcrop where we chatted with a young Timorese couple on their own day out and admired the colourful fishing boats moored in the bay. We rode on, found another beach, we dipped into the sea again. Late in the afternoon, we settled at a checker cloth table by the ocean and ate spicy grilled fish and octopus on skewers. As tempting as it was to keep forging on, the sun was going down, so we headed back west. By the time we reached Dili, it was sunset, and we watched the light turn pink and purple and maroon over the outskirts of the city.
0: And now a highlight from The Globalist. The US president was in Helsinki this week, fresh from his attendance at the NATO summit in Lithuania. Let's hear more from Monaco's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov, telling us all about Biden's visit to Finland
8: so basically as 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 you can imagine biden visiting a, a country of of uh, just over 5 million people uh, you know uh, fin- finland is such a small country so they pretty much uh, gathered all the journalists with uh, a little bit of sort of international experience um, to to help with the host broadcasting and and i'm lucky to be uh, one of them so so i'm helping with the Host broadcasting, and we're actually what we're doing today is we're producing, uh, or rather, I'm producing five hours of live programming on on Biden's visit, following his every move. You know, um, I've been uh, trying to spot Secret Service agents in the in the center of Helsinki, trying to figure out which route he's gonna he's gonna take with the new beast, uh, finding out all the details of where he's uh, staying, and and who he's uh, he's meeting with. So it's just been a lot of sort of uncovering secrets because for some reason, the White House is not very forthcoming when it comes to releasing information about his roots and, and, and whereabouts.
9: Yes, you sort of know when he's there, don't you? But not beforehand. I mean, at, at the risk of uh, not getting yourself arrested, what can you tell us about what he's doing?
8: So I, I can actually now uh, talk about it officially because, I mean, he already arrived. Air Force One uh, touched down uh, late last night. Um, actually, it was late, but it was a sunset time because summer in Finland is, um, you know, the days are so long. So he touched down, I think it was about 10 o'clock. Beautiful sunset shots of the Air Force One pulling into the uh, Helsinki Vanta airport. And then his uh, rather large convoy, I mean, why do, why do they need all these cars? Made made its way to uh, the Radisson Hotel in, in downtown Helsinki. So we know that that's where he is staying. And we also know that he's going to leave the hotel at uh, about um, half past. Twelve and head to the presidential cast, uh, castle for for talks with the Finnish president and other other Nordic leaders. So we know that, and we have a fairly good guess. I did some spy work last night of where he's going because uh, you know you just see sort of where all the. Uh, Secret Service guys are standing and you know that that's where he's going to be driving. So I have a good guess.
9: Um, just tell us a little bit about it. Yes, I mean, obviously, you've been running around like a scalded cat. But I mean, a couple of days ago, when, when, when Biden was in London, it was really quite bananas to see the likes of, I don't know, Marine One flying over the, you know, the, lo- the local nursery. It, w- it was quite mind boggling. And how does Helsinki brace itself for, an in- for, a, for a visit on this scale, um, given the fact that, you know, like you say, it's a small country?
8: I mean I have to say it's not an exaggeration to say that Helsinki is pretty much in in lockdown when when Biden is here let's let's not forget that Finland as the latest NATO member also wants to sort of uh, build a good relationship to the US and show that we're a good member and we behave well. So, you know, every request in terms of security that they've made, we, we pretty much fulfilled it. So, you know, they stopped traffic, for example, on the main highway yesterday. Cars just had to stop on the on the main sort of highway artery um, of, of southern southern Finland. There's been helicopters swearing over um, downtown Helsinki pretty much nonstop since yesterday afternoon, um, distracting my very important sleep, I uh, have to say. Um, and you know, it's it's uh, we just pretty much go into this full like lockdown mode when when he's here.
9: There's also that wonderful thing that you wonder what a country is going to give to its visitor in terms of uh, national dishes, moments that, that sort of display national pride. Uh, what are we likely to see Biden being treated to?
8: Ice cream. So we know that uh, uh, Mr. Biden is a big fan of ice cream. So Finland has made uh, a signature ice cream to him. Sadly, I have not had the opportunity for some reason to, uh, to taste this ice cream, but I'm, I'm, I, 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 neither do I know what's in it, but I would guess probably strawberries, vanilla, because that's the Finnish sort of favorite uh, summer taste. But I have to, I have to do some hard-hitting journalism and go find that ice cream and report back to you.
10: UBS has over 900
11: investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900
0: of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
10: To find out how we could help you,
0: contact us
10: at ubs.com.
11: The Monocle Quality of Life Conference is coming to Munich from the 31st of August to the 2nd of September. Join Monocle's editors and some of the world's best and brightest in Bavaria for the 8th edition. You'll hear from industry leaders, change makers, and smart thinkers during three days of inspiring conversation and debate. You'll create meaningful connections with 200 dynamic delegates from all around the globe. Discover a city that's full of surprises and offers the opportunity for a dose of mountain air. And you'll enjoy top-notch hospitality and a hearty Bavarian welcome. Head over to monocle.com forward slash events now.
0: You are listening to The Curator, our highlights here on Monaco Radio this week. I had the pleasure this week to speak to Argentina's first female winemaker, Susana Balbo. She discusses wine and hospitality in Argentina.
2: I study enology because when was the moment to go to college, to university, eh, the military took over the government and was very dark moments in Argentina country in the in the politicians' situation and I wanted to study physics in in instituto valseiro in southern Argentina in bariloche, but was under the army management and my parents didn't allow me to go i I was only seventeen year old so in that way, I was looking for something that fulfilled my requirement for career because I really love chemistry, biology. I love uh, f- physics, mathematics are very easy task for me, and also to be in, contract w- in contact with the nature. Uh, I was very curious about physics because we are energy, so that is why I wanted to study that. So I, th- I, I. Applied approached the Enology's uh, University and really I liked the program and with the dream that maybe in three years when I was 20 or 21, I was able to go further in my career studying something in deeper, the, the physics. However, the military government is to, uh, was in the government for eight years, so impossible to do that. And I graduated uh, at university with a lot of passion about the making because I have wonderful teachers, wonderful, and I fell in love with the career. It's very good, very suitable for women because you are able to, to have your family, to have your job, to pour your creativeness, so I'm glad that... Uh, God put put in my way this career because uh, I devote my life to that
0: Amazing you're quite successful at it as well and Tell us more about about your wines and when did you actually launch your own kind of brand, winery? I know you you were born in Mendoza and I think that's still more or less where you are based, right?
2: Yes, well, I born in Mendoza. However, in Mendoza, I didn't have a, an option to have a job because I was a woman, and female, and they offer only love working. And I already know the in that moment, I already knew. In that moment, the love working I was, was boring and very routine uh, uh, daily. So I decided not to take uh, this kind of uh, work because I, I was afraid to to lose another opportunity in the, in a better position. And a few months after, uh, four or five months after, I was working in, in meanwhile with my parents in a fabric of uh, tablecloth and linens, uh, working with them to have m- my job, one job. And then uh, uh, it was an advertising newspaper asking for a maker for northern Argentina, for Salta. This is 1,000 miles from my house, so... I answered the, the requirement. I didn't fulfill the requirement, and must recognize, because they were asking for four years' experience, and I was just graduated. I, I graduated in June uh, 1981, and I got the job in November, so <laughs> it was just a few months after graduation. And I moved to Salta, uh, working over there, and for me was the second university, the University of the experience exploring the the limits you have in your creativeness to do something because it's very isolated place, more than nowadays forty two years ago. and I didn't have much resources. So I left my comfort zone in Mendoza to face a lot of new challenges and I didn't know if I was prepared for that. But I did. I did I was prepared because uh, I was I managed how to solve problem with very limited uh, resources. I always make one example that uh, gives uh, to the people the picture what what I was living. In Cafayate the, the fuel for cars were alcohol. And that produced in the distribution system some problems. And always my car was stopping for the distribution system. But every time I was going to the fitting place, they did in five minutes, ten minutes. And I I, I told to them, please, teach me how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I want to do myself, because sometimes in the middle of the mountains, my car stopped. And I learned how to fit my car, and I learned how to... To feed uh, pumps in the winery, so you explore uh, talents you don't know you have. When you are in your comfort zone you call to okay, I need a, a fitting for that, or I need uh, somewhere, uh, some somebody who who can do uh, something for electricity, and also I was repairing electricity stuff, everything. So you learn a lot um, and you become a person full of different skills that among your life is very useful. And I think uh, that prepared me this 10 years I was in Cafayate prepared me for the future I had after
0: that's amazing and and what a future because besides of course, the winery, you are involved in hospitality as well. I think that's a big part and and, and I want to know when did when did you realize that because wine, I know wine tourism in argentina is quite, it's quite important actually for the for the country 's kind of hospitality scene, right?
2: Yes, when I come back to Mendoza to work, um, I established a, a first uh, winery, and I failed because it was focused in domestic market. Mm. And, you know, Argentina, always we are in the news for the economy problem. (laughs) And in that moment, I faced the hyperinflation. I was a victim of a scam. And really was very tough moment. And I decided to, to travel all over the world to see what is going on in the wine industry, what happens in other countries that we don't have in Argentina. And I started bringing into Argentina... New technologies, new procedures, new things for new stuff for wineries, and being one of the protagonists of the winemaking in Argentina wine industry, and also in the management, how to manage the wines and the winery and the vineyard and everything, and as as well I realized the tourism was very important uh, task for wineries. In, for instance, in Italy, in in Napa, in South Africa, everywhere people were developing very slowly because I'm talking about the '90s, mm-hmm. where the wine tourism was mild regarding what is today. So I had in my in my in my mind something that. I could feel, fulfill in the future, but not in the in the moment I settled my company. When I established my, my second company in 1999, that was a successful one, and only focused in export. For me, it was very natural to approach and to do something for tourism, because. We receive a lot of foreigners, a lot of people that want to visit Mendoza, to be exposed to Argentina wines, and to see what is going on. And I realized we didn't have a very high-end hotels in Argentina. We have in Mendoza, we have a five-star hotel, but these big ones, without the charming, that the very small boutique hotel where you feel you are at your home and you are nurtured for people that really look after you and they know your name they know what you like and they anticipate you and what you are going to need and under this idea under this philosophy the luxury um, offer of a high quality stay with my daughter we invested in one house i already had with very big garden, beautiful garden, with six thousand square meters of uh, garden, nice. very mature garden, and we built very bo- very small boutique hotel, seven suites, and every suite is an spa. So the suite has a sauna, has a humid sauna too. Uh, it's amazing, and it's uh, with uh, also with uh, we did uh, we have uh, art curation. With a local artists or Argentinian artist, artists very well known and very good ones, so it's a it's a great experience. We are in in the hotel. It's not just a lodging. It's ex, it's an experience itself and very fine dining. Um, so we we opened one year ago and we are having great success. So we are very happy what we did, and we are planning the second one now.
0: And the urbanist is conducting their very own summer book club. One of the highlights is Brian McLaughlin. He examines the changing face of retail in his new book and recounts his time from shop assistant to COO at the legendary music store, HMV.
12: It was definitely the place for me, but definitely I had no idea that I'd end up running the company and had no ambition to run the company. So... I was overawed with their store in Oxford Street, 363 Oxford Street, as a young boy, about 12. You come out of the tube station at Bond Street and you turn right and there's this emporium of music on three floors. And I was rather taken with it. That was all. I was a customer. I didn't say I want to work for them one day or anything. I just liked the record store. When I managed to get in at ground floor level, at sales assistant level, you could work out within sort of 12 months that the company didn't have a lot of ambition. It had one store in Oxford Street which made money and the nine stores that they had built outside of London were all sort of struggling and you just saw that the business didn't know where it was going really and the stores they had in London, they only had them because EMI owned HMV And a lot of the retailers in in London owed EMI money. And so the way they got their money was to buy their shops and call them HMV.
13: What were the challenges? Because I presume that when you first started, you were probably one of the biggest purveyors of music in the UK... The likes of Virgin came along. We saw some arrivals from the US trying to muscle in on, on the action. Was it a competitive scene as well in London at that time for music? Well,
12: the competition, as I said to you at the beginning, I don't really think HMV ever had, in the early days, had any real ambition outside of Oxford Street, other than that they thought they wanted to open some shops. But they didn't have a strategy, they didn't have a plan, they didn't have a formula, except that they said everything's got to be built on 363 Oxford Street's values. And the problem that you had is when you opened stores of 2,000 square feet instead of 12,000, which Oxford Street was, you can't get the same titles in the browsers that you can in, in Oxford Street. So I had a big job sorting out the range. What could be possible in a small space, despite the fact that HMV Oxford Street was predominantly a completely different customer to a customer you'd find in Rotherham or Manchester or Bath or Bristol. But the challenges were the same for the competition, except I think the competition, fortunately for us, was in more disarray in terms of what they wanted, what their formula was, what their strategy was. They just filled the shop with records and hoped people would come in. You know, you can't build a business doing that.
13: And also many of those very quickly moved into computer games or tried to be bookstores and magazine shops as well. They tried to mix so many things into it. Not under your time there, but what went wrong? Was it simply the streaming of music made people think that they didn't want to buy records anymore, that they didn't need record stores?
12: I think that just before, well, about a year before I left, we were grappling with the onset of streaming. You've got to remember that we hadn't been a public company for that long back in about 2004 or 5. And if you look at Amazon, for example, although they weren't streaming, they were selling CDs very, very cheaply, as was Tesco's and Asda. But the streaming came a bit later. But I think that, for us, it was an enormous investment, an enormous investment to suddenly change from being a high street retailer to being something very technical. We didn't, A, didn't have the skills and we didn't have the money. And I think that's probably true of a lot of high street retailers. I mean, for example, it's only that recently that Marks & Spencers has had a, an online offer and Marks and & Spencers have been in business a lot longer than most other retailers. So I think it, a lot of it's to do with money investment, which it was very difficult for a high street retailer to get that investment when you weren't a dot-com. What's fascinating is you know, that obviously...
13: Running parallel with your story is what happened to the book chains and, and the bookstores. You know, We saw many of the big players from the United States, they left the UK market. Some of the book companies have come out of the other side of this, reconnecting with uh, an audience, and a sizable audience, who we thought would be lost to e-readers and would never come back. And, and they have come back, and they want the physical product. And we, we have certainly seen that in, in the record space and in the music space, but not quite on the same scale maybe, lots of smaller individual independent record shops but do you think there is a space for, not going back to the scale that HMV used to have a store on Oxford Street but there's been talk of it coming back to Oxford Street do you think there is space for a a renewal of the role of the record store in our cities?
12: I suppose from the books example you gave, I felt that it may well go the same way the CD went through the Kindle and then in my years, many years now of retirement, I realised that that's not happened and it just looks as though people want to hold on to that physical book i understand the kindle is very successful i mean i have one myself but there's something very different about the book maybe that explains why people have gone back to vinyl because there's something there was always something special about the sleeve notes on on a vinyl album compared to virtually nothing on a cd So I suppose things go around in circles in the end. But I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest with you, if vinyl continues to do what it's doing. Even for me, looking at the figures, they're incredible, really.
13: I guess the other interesting thing was, you know, again, this very visual connection with the world of music. So if you went to HMV, there would often be a band in there doing the launch of their new album... It wasn't something done on video or streamed. Your connection with bands was often quite close.
12: Yeah, and I think that that happens the same in Waterstones with the authors. You know, they haven't really got another outlet, an author. They don't tend to do Wembley Stadium, but they do have 250 Waterstone stores to go into and numerous other independents. So I think that cultural point that you were making earlier, I think it's still very important that not only can you buy the album in an HMV store or a record store, but you can get to see the artist as well. And also there was that thing of, you know, the record will be dropped at twelve o'clock tonight or the record would be there
13: first thing in the morning yeah. and, and you would go past the HMV store and there'd be a yeah. queue of people waiting <laughs> yeah. to be the first people to get yeah. hold of the album.
12: But equally from my point of view, if let's say I'm watching a movie and there's a soundtrack to the movie and I like a song, I can with my iPhone now I can use Shazam it'll tell me what the record's playing on on the soundtrack i can then go to spotify and i can download it and that that for me is incredible
13: and tell me when that iconic store closed down on oxford street was that a sad moment for you
12: well you've got to remember that i closed that store down originally because it became too small it looked busier than bond street station at one stage i mean i'm not joking we had three floors it was only twelve thousand square feet And it was very, very uncomfortable for people to shop in that store. It was absolutely packed to the rafters every day. I mean, it was very, very profitable. But at the end of the day, we got a a lucky break. Somebody phoned me and said there's a, I think it was a shoe shop that was available opposite, which was double the size. And we were very fortunate to have secured it. And we said, as sad as it is, we're going to have to close it and we were very very fortunate because it was the iconic store in, in music, George Martin agreed to come and once we got permission from London councils to unveil a blue plaque, which is still there now, to say that this was the original HMV store in 1921, which was opened by Sir Edward Elgar and that blue plaque's there, so that was sad for me, personally but we couldn't keep that store going anymore, and then I think Foot Locker, the shoe shop, took it. And then years on, when HMV was in administration and the new owner wanted to go back, I think Foot Locker let them back in. So they opened it, and then they then closed it again, and now it's reopening again. So the sad day was not recently for me. It was whilst I was there. When you think about the world of retail and
13: what made it special and Mm. what made it unique not just the record shop what what do you think you need to run a successful retail business
12: i think we touched on it earlier that i always thought the way forward for us was looking at the competition was that i don't think record retailing had ever been taken seriously i think a lot of us thought we were in the world of rock and roll and we didn't have to have the same standards same values as marks and spencer's or some of the other big retailers we were in music we could just do what we like and. A lot of our competition, not so much the independents, but a lot of our competitions were like that. And I think, personally, you have to have very high retail standards. You've got to have a good in-stock position. You've got to have competitive pricing, friendly staff, knowledgeable staff. And those were the values that I actually hammered and hammered away at for almost 38 years to make a successful record store. It sounds very old-fashioned word. You have to be a good shopkeeper. And I thought that's what we became.
13: And even though you're now in a a world of digital music, do you find solace? Do you find time to think? Because you made clear that music is still a vital part of your life. Is there something special that when you put the headphones on or you turn up the the dial? I,
12: I walk every day with my iPod and there's not a day goes by that I don't have music on. My daughters keep me young, they keep sending me new tracks, I keep sending them tracks. So, yeah, music's still very special and important in my life.
0: We're back with the curator. This time from Monocle Design Extra, we meet Julio Kovalenko and Rodrigo Armas, the team behind cross-disciplinary architecture and design practice Atelier Caracas. They discuss their multifaceted approach and the importance of producing design through a Venezuelan lens.
10: Rodrigo and I are both trained as architects and our main interest since the beginning has like rooted from architecture. But... With years going by, we started to realize that our library, our books, were not that much about architecture. We've always seemed to look for inspiration outside architecture, be that fashion design, for example. Heroes of ours are are related to fashion, or be that uh, industrial design, or art as well. For us, it's an excuse to materialize our ideas, be that in an architectural project or in installations, collaborating with fashion designers. And nowadays, that we're like experimenting more and more with the collectible design or industrial design. Everything for us, be that a fork or be that a garment or a five-story building, which we are now constructing in Venezuela, they all have the same rigor and the same complexity. And everything is architecture for us. Yeah. That's not a new idea. That's something that, for example, Hans Hollein said in the 80s. But uh, it's really cool to give like, the Venezuelan filter to that idea or the Atelier Caracas filter to that idea and create our own narrative.
14: Throughout all these years, we've designed everything from commercial to residential. Two years back, we started immersing ourselves in industrial design. And it's been crazy. It's always been an interest of us. The first piece that we designed was the Credenza. It's like a cabinet. came up.
10: Like a funny shape cabinet design.
14: And it's crazy because we designed it and we put it out there. Two months later, it appeared in Architectural Digest France. And we didn't even have the credenza built. It was an ideas. Of course, we had uh, plans and everything out of how to be built. After that, we were like immersed in this industrial design world and we had to put more rigor into it. And now we've designed other uh, pieces and furniture and we're currently in
10: that process right now.
11: And who are your clients right now? Are they mostly based in
10: Venezuela? Are they international? And if we're speaking about design, we move in this territory that it's called collectible design and the client is usually a collector like an art collector somebody that that's willing to understand that a piece of furniture can be something that the end of that piece is not uh, ergonomics it's what the piece is meant to say like in a narrative way it's for us a place where we can like express our ideas without gravity involved design for us is like our petit way to create cinema, you know, like something without gravity, which is interesting to approach and to solve. But sometimes it's good to like float. Definitely. The clients that we, that we talked about,
14: we've had clients, people tell us, well, this is not very functional. And we say, well, I mean, yeah, you, you could say that, but that's not the end result. I mean, if you want something super functional, then, you know, go buy something else. This is kind of a sculptural process more than something... Super functional. Of course, it has to be functional, but um, that's not our main goal, you know.
11: Do you think it's important that the conversation about Venezuela, which has been about
10: other things <coughs> recently, including problems of inflation, etc., yeah. political issues, is it good to just get people talking about something else? Culture is political. The real problem in Venezuela for us is a cultural problem, and that's what we like to approach. Venezuela used to be like this huge design architectural mecca in the 50s. There was so much going on at that time, not only in Venezuela, in Brazil as well, and Mexico, and uh, Argentina, Colombia. There's so much like potent uh, expressions at that time, and Venezuela was one of them. There was a cultural like isolation that I, I don't know where it came from because it's not from our generation. We like grew up on it, and it was already going. There was like this sort of disconnection from that era, and that's why we. Are trying to talk about through our designs, like not to revive it, like a copy paste kind of thing, but to pay homage through our designs, like through small gimmicks, and maybe start to create this sort of new narrative or new language in Venezuela. We like to talk about, for example, Carlos Raúl Villanueva, which is like. Venezuelan Le Corbusier, if you want to put it like that. And uh, the relation, it has been coherent or not with uh, Milan. What's that all about? But if you connect the dots, he was really good friends with Alexander Calder. And the university we studied had a lot of artworks by Calder. And you start, like, connecting these dots. And uh, for us, that's beautiful. And that's what we really want to talk about.
0: And finally, here on The Curator, Paul Burston. He's an acclaimed Welsh writer, journalist, documentarian and activist. He has dedicated his career to creating and promoting LGBTQ plus stories, both in his own work and by lifting up other artists. He joins Georgina Godwin to discuss his new memoir, We Can Be Heroes, A Survivor's Story.
11: I think I was part of a much wider struggle. and There were many other people involved in the activism, certainly, that I was involved in. But I've always thought of my subsequent career in writing and as a promoter as an extension of that activism. And I think that creating platforms to give marginalised voices an opportunity is also activism. And creating the Polaris Salon and the Book Prize was very much about my frustration at the lack of stories or the shortage of stories. I mean, as an author, I experienced so many times in the early part of my career... Rejection letter to some editors saying, Does this character have to be gay?
1: Mm.
14: You
11: know, things have changed a lot now, mm. but 20 years ago that was quite commonplace.
5: Explain what Polari is.
11: Well, Polari is a gay slang that was very popular in the pre liberation era, especially the sort of 1960s. There was a television, a radio show, sorry, called Round the Horn with Kenneth Williams that launched in 1965, the year I was born. And they had two characters called Julian and Sandy and they spoke in Polari. And Polari was a way for gay men in this country to communicate. It was like a coded way of communicating at a time when being explicit could have got you arrested. Mm. So when the idea for the salon came along, I was DJing. I, I was a DJ for a while, not, not a very good one, but I was a DJ for a while in a club, in in a bar, sorry, in Soho. And they asked me to host a regular night and I decided that I would do it, but only if I could have a an element of live literary readings and poetry and so on. And I had to think of a name really quickly. And so Polari just jumped into my head because I thought, well, to me, that means literally gay words. Yeah. So it seemed the obvious name.
5: Yeah. And of course, you first came across Polari, as you say, listening to Round the Horn. But here you were, you were in small town Wales, this extraordinary child who started dyeing his hair, wearing makeup, acting out, basically. Yeah, And it was a difficult time. I mean, you you write about your time at school where, of course, there was bullying and so on. But then you get elected onto the school council. You get to sit in on staff meetings. That was one of
11: the most bizarre experiences of my life because I was not a popular kid. And I think what happened was that in the sixth form, I was a prefect because I was always academic. But I think the student body as a whole, They elected me not because they liked me, but because they knew that it would really annoy the headmaster because I looked like (laughs) such a freak. And to be fair to him, I mean, he did ask for another vote. (laughs) And then the vote came back even stronger in my favour. And he did ask me to tone it down a bit. And I did tone it down a bit for the meetings. But it was quite an extraordinary mixture because I was on the one hand really unpopular and still being bullied, not as badly in the sixth one as I had when I was younger, but still a bit at the same time I was also sitting on this board and sort of interviewing teachers for jobs. I mean it was quite mad.
5: Tell us the Mr. Wheeler story. I love that story.
11: <laughs> there was a teacher who I call Mr. Wheeler in the book who I always clashed with many many times and he was applying for a more senior position in the school from the department that he was working in. When I was told this I went to the headmaster and said it wouldn't be appropriate for me to be on this interview panel because I have these issues with this teacher but on a personal level and The headmaster said, well, that's very, very big of you and I respect that. And shortly afterwards, Mr. Wheeler went storming into the headmaster's office to demand that I be taken off this panel. And the headmaster told him that I'd I'd already come forward and shown far more maturity than he had. (laughs) (laughs) And he still didn't get the job. So that was very gratifying.
6: But
5: you go back to the school later.
11: Yes, several years later, I was doing a lot of freelancing and I was freelancing for the Sunday Times magazine. And it was at a time when there was a lot of stories in the newspapers and in the media about teenage boys falling behind at school, even in subjects where they traditionally had been excelling and girls were doing better than the boys. So several writers were sent back to their secondary schools to talk to young teenage boys. And I went back to my comprehensive in Wales and went to the staff room to meet the teacher who was going to show me round. And Mr Wheeler was sat there and I came in and he said... Oh, you're writing for the Sunday Times. I suppose someone's got to. And I said, oh, you're still here. I suppose someone's got to be.
5: (laughs) (laughs) It was a pretty unhappy time at school, though. And really, all you could think about was getting out. Yeah. And you sort of almost self-sabotaged by not getting into Loughborough University so that you could end up in town at Strawberry Hill at Queen Mary's, where you did religion and English and drama. Quickly dropping the religion, it must be said. But this was really the beginning of your life as an artist.
11: Completely. I mean, I'd always been interested in the arts. I'd always been a really keen reader. I sort of started writing and abandoned so many novels as a teenager, usually strongly influenced by whichever writer I was into at at that time. But going to St Mary's and going to the drama department in particular, actually, because English was taught in the way that I'd been taught all my life, which was you studied the text and you analysed the text. Whereas the drama course, because it was also practical, you sort of unpacked it all and you saw how text worked and how things came to life and how dialogue worked and how you stage things and shape them. And for me, that was so eye-opening. It changed my whole perspective on what writing could be. And my first instinct by the end of college was that I wanted to be involved in the theatre. And it took me back because when I was a kid, I was really obsessed with marionette puppies. I used to have little marionette shows I used to put on with my parents when I was a kid and for my, my neighbours. But I got involved in Fringe Theatre when I left college in 1987. And I did a couple of things that I was quite proud of, but I just found the collaborative nature of it very restricting because I realised that I was actually quite singular in the way that I wanted to go about things. And even though I was often writing and directing and on one occasion acting not very well in a play... I didn't have complete control Mm. and I liked to be in control.
5: Now, the book starts with you lurking outside heaven at the time, (laughs) the biggest gay club in Europe, I think, and really not having the courage to go in. And then gradually, as the book goes on, you go back, you go in by the time we really get into full flow, you are Mr. Club. You know everything about every club. You are also heavily into drinks and into drugs. But this story kind of unfolds and we see every stage. And I love that and the way you you name check all these various people that we have heard of or we begin to hear of during the book. And it seemed to me that the writing, your journalism, came out again, from this instinct of activism?
11: Oh, completely. I mean, I became an activist because when I was involved in ACTA, which was the AIDS activist group that I was in, so many of our demonstrations, or ZAPs as we called them, were misreported or not reported on. And I felt very frustrated at the fact that we were doing what we felt was the right thing. Of course, people are welcome to disagree with that. But it didn't get the media coverage that I always wanted. And I realised that the one way to do that was to basically cut out the middleman and become the journalist Mm -hmm. and tell the story myself. So I started pitching ideas to, at the time, the gay free papers initially, and also to a magazine called City Limits that was a kind of rival to Time Out and started getting commissions. So I started off as a freelancer. And then I met through, I had a part-time job at a gay policing project called Gallup, which is now an anti-violence project, but back then was more of a police monitoring project. And through that, I met a guy called Brian Kennedy, who was, was then called the gay editor at City Limits. And he asked me if I would fill in for him because he was going on a holiday. And I didn't know this at the time, but he wasn't going on a holiday. He was actually ill. And so subsequently, Brian sadly passed away. And then I took over that position after he passed away. Mm. And that was my first staff position on a magazine. Subsequently, I I applied and got the same job at time out when that became available, again, because the person that was doing it before me had died. So I had this strange mixture of my career accelerated very quickly for my age, but those positions only became available because the older generation were dying of AIDS. So I had this lot of survivor guilt about it, Mm -hmm. even though I was enjoying the success. There was a part of me
0: that felt like I hadn't really earned it. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.